0: we're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation
1: science logic reason do you have any hard data
2: now that's what i call science You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas about science, technology, engineering and maths from the island of Tasmania. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, so head to edgeradio.org.au for more information about the good things they're doing. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Kate Johnson and we have a expert guest that's going to be talking to us about turbo chokes, which is so exciting. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. We are recording in Lutruwita, so I acknowledge the Palawa people and the Muanina people in, of Nepalina Hobart. And I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So today we'll be talking about research on Tasmania's native hens and I'm really excited because I don't know anybody who can drive almost any stretch of road in Tasmania and not see some terry brochooks. I love when you start to see them like gearing up, it's like um, Roadrunner in the Tasmanian devil. So I'm really excited. So Kate, can you tell us a little bit more about our guest and the topic we'll be discussing today?
1: Yeah absolutely. So today we're joined by Lucille. She's a PhD student at the University of Tasmania studying Tasmania's beloved turbochooks. So Lucille studies these birds and the broader family of birds that they belong to as part of her research project and we'll ask Lucille more about this and the details of her research later but to start off with Lucille could you tell us a little bit about your journey into science because I know before your PhD you worked with a number of different species.
0: Yeah, um thanks for having me today. It's a great honor. So before the native hands, Tasmaya and everything. So I'm actually from France and that's where I did all my undergrads and masters. And um I had the great chance of going to Mexico um during my master project and work on monkeys' behavior and the impact of fragmentation on the monkeys. And that was really good because that was a very applied conservation project. So we could um go in the forest, observe the monkeys during the day. And there was also a lot of outreach activities in schools and with the local people that were a bit more um, living closer to the forest and didn't have the same access to like education. And, um, so a lot of outreach and, and activities with the locals were really good. And um, it also included tree planting activity to rehi- rehabilitate the forest. Um, so that was a very complete conservation project and it was such a great way to start because it made complete sense. And when I went back to France, I did some work with the Park and Wildlife um, organization in France. And we worked on making sure that there would be good cohabitation between wolves and um, French people because they went extinct in the 30s and they were slowly recolonizing from Italian Alps. Um, but we didn't have them on the torture for so long that people were scared they would get shot again. So there was a lot of work seeing how reserve could be ready to have the wolves coming and, and how everything would play together, um, which was really interesting. A bit more, um, not so much on the field, but more administrative prepari- preparation.
2: Um, That's fascinating. So do you speak like multiple languages? Because it sounds like doing outreach in a remote community like <laughs> that, it would language might be a barrier. I don't think I would be able to Yeah, <laughs> uh, do but that. Yeah, when I was in Mexico, I wasn't doing the main part of it, which I was more supporting. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. So you must be really kind of willing to throw yourself in the deep end because for me that sounds like super intimidating to go somewhere. I don't speak the native language, but, you know, you've been here and also worked in France and then also in... Yeah, uh, well,
0: Spanish was really um, a passion for me and since I was a kid I knew, like, South America and, and this language was really, like, something that attracted me a lot. So I knew wow. I wanted to go there um, and actually went to Ecuador years ago just before covid i was very lucky for a conference and just happened to be there which is one of the places i dreamed to go and um i could find time to get to the galapagos island just before coming back and it was such a dream um i was actually very, very emotional getting there on the boat because you know the whole darwin theory and 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 so much um yeah so much science history there in ecuador there is um so the conference was the humbled Day celebrations. So it was the the father of biogeography, and like combining those two big scientists in one trip in in Ecuador and um, for the conference in the Galapagos and, and seeing all the the finches that Darwin studies and the giant turtles and um, that was just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. That's <laughs>
2: awesome. Science making dreams come true. Yeah. You,
0: you don't really have a. Yeah. I guess when you have a dream that's that big, like you just go for it. Because English was also quite daunting for me um and spanish was a lot easier to learn so because from french the same roots so it was easier and then when i realized after my master that if i wanted to be international i actually had to speak english which i didn't quite do at the time i was like oh yeah i mean i just did spanish that was pretty easy pretty straightforward i'm just gonna do the same thing (laughs) and i went to new zealand being like all right i'm just gonna spend some time learning that and then it'd be sweet and it just like took me so long like years <laughs> because it's so different so like okay well I'm doing it for science I'm gonna do it and um yeah just work the it and wow and
2: that's it. really admirable I'm always amazed at people who do science in a second language because <laughs>
1: yeah, it's too. hard enough when you're a native English speaker <laughs> absolutely because academic um, scientific language isn't anyone's first language already yeah <laughs> So <laughs> having to learn English and then Academic English. Yeah, true. Oh my goodness.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think I was because we we still speak a bit English in, in like at school and during my masters, but it's more academic, so like quite academic words. I was okay with. Ah. Um, like stochasticity and like, big words yeah. like that. And then when I actually travelled and then I couldn't say like spoons and forks and plates, <laughs> I was <laughs> like, I can tell you a bit more about science, but it doesn't <laughs> work in like a day-to-day conversation. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: and Lucille, what was it that drew you to science in the first place, specifically the study of animals, which is what you do now?
0: Yeah, um, I think it started when I was a kid and I was just very being very curious um, and uh, asking lots of questions about what was around me and understand why things were the way they were. i um, come from a quite rural small town in France, so there was just not much biodiversity around, um, unfortunately. And um, I just remember being like walking out, driving around, and and just wondering where where are the animals, like where are the birds, like there's just nothing. Everything just felt a bit empty and um <laughs> it's a bit, sad. <laughs> it is a bit sad yeah and and so and nothing could really answer my questions things like that nothing is a scientist no one is a scientist in my family so i just yeah i just found that nourishment in science and that was like finally answering all my questions and oh yeah this, this is why it's like that and
2: do you think that's why you're so passionate about conservation too because you, like from a young age, were aware of that lack yeah, in your community?
0: totally. I remember um, being under 18 and being like, oh, I, just, I just can't wait to turn 18 and being like a bit more activist and then like you <laughs> know, <laughs> know, save the indigenous save the species. And, and that's what things. we all think about when we want to turn 18. Yeah.
2: <laughs> 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 you're listening to That's What I Call Science and we're talking to Lucille Levesque about her research into Tasmania's Tabor Stay with us and we'll hear more about the native birds.
1: You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking to Lucille Levesque about her research into Tasmania's turbotrucks and the family of birds that they belong to. My name is Kate Johnson and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest, Lucille. So, Lucille, can you give us just an overview of the research that you have been conducting on TurboTrux for your PhD? Sure. Um, so, I work on overall on the family of
0: rails, um, which is a bit family that includes uh, rails, crates, coots and gallinules. so people are generally more... The no more, during the the purple swamp hand, or the they're like everywhere. Or if you're from Tasmania, the native hands. Um, and so this is a very interesting but family to study in terms of extensions. So my PhD is more specifically on the factors of vulnerability, and um, the rails are really good for this because they are such massive colonizers, but also they went extinct so much. So they. At the same time, they became very, very diverse on all these islands. And they colonised most islands in the Pacific, which is more than 800 islands. And they evolved in many different species, generally flightless. Um, so there was like hundreds and hundreds of flightless species um, on islands before, maybe thousands. And then they massively went extinct because when the first people arrived, they had no behavior, like anti behavior, and they just massively went extinct. And so the native hen is one of these very few survivors. There's only um, 19 fightless real species surviving now. Wow. And so it's one of them, and it's surprisingly one of the only one that is not threatened. So it's doing really well, which is quite remarkable. So it's like, oh, okay, wow. Um, what happened? <laughs> How come you're so good? Um, also, it... It has some like a darker side because it he, he used to live on the the Australian mainland before, but it went extinct there um, and that's when the dingoes arrived at the same time as um, some climate very vari- like a great climate variation and um the Aboriginal culture intensified so the combination of this factor probably drove them extinct on the mainland so. It has this possibility of actually going extinct.
2: Could I ask, what is antibotis or behavior? Oh, so antipredators? Oh antipredators yeah. behaviour. What is that?
0: It's um when a bird didn't evolve in the presence of something that could eat it. Oh okay, um, so it doesn't learn to run away.
2: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> uh, it's just like very, you know. Like I was wondering, uh, I was like, okay, that does seem like it's quite important. Okay, so then it went extinct on the mainland, but yeah in Tasmania it hasn't
0: in Tasmania it was fined um it also had massive declines in the 50s 1950s because it was considered as an agricultural pest so farmers were like shooting them lots and lots and And, um and some people said that it actually could have gone extinct if they had kept going but they they got protected and and that saved that problem but uh so it's doing very well but there's also that side was like oh well we're not quite sure that
2: you so does it do out. well in islands other than Tasmania? Um it's
0: otherwise it's just on Bruny Island and oh, okay. Rhone Island.
2: So it's very like localized to Tasmania and it's yeah. small islands. Yeah, it's
0: it's an, uh, yeah, endemic to Tasmania.
2: Wow, that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. And it's um as a rail, um, because they're all threatened and disappearing, is probably the only place on earth that you can be um so close to rails all the time that way because they're like in the urban parks, they're like in the cities. They're everywhere. Yeah, you can see them <laughs> so easily, but anywhere else it's like they're so elusive. Like rails are actually pretty secretive and it's really hard to see them, but the is like, look at me, look at
1: me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was always taking it for granted. Just you can see a turbochuck everywhere. Yeah. It's a great characteristic for a study species. Oh, that was <laughs> actually making the... my life very easy. Yeah. <laughs> very, very, very grateful. <laughs> So you study the factors that make these birds vulnerable to extinction, yes? So how do you conduct that research? What sort of methods do you use? Mm,
0: So um, we knew that the population that was on Murau Island was actually declining. And we were hearing stories about how the devils that were recently introduced on Murau Island because they wanted to create that safety, safe population from the tumour disease how they could actually create that decline, cause that decline because they would be eating them and, and breeding them. But it's also native predators. And um yeah, so, you know, we use history, but until you actually do the, the research, you never know. So we went there and um and that was a a very good case study because we had the data from the 90s that Anne Goldison and her colleagues did. So we could compare and um and we knew that on Mara Island they had some big change. Like we knew that the devils were introduced. And um, also the wombat population actually inc- incredibly increased um, over the the last the past few years. And so that was interesting comparing that there. And um, yeah, so we found that they actually declined a lot by more than 70%. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, which is... Um, Conservation-wise, it's not such a big problem because they're everywhere in Tasmania and it's not not so dramatic. But it's interesting to look at what factors create that because then you can understand more in Tasmania. If those factors are replicated, then it can
1: happen again. Like a case study.
2: Yeah. So that's a really interesting opportunity because it's not often, if I'm not correct wrong, that in conservation or, like, wildlife where you can so discreetly look at it before and after. So was there actually, like, high quality before data, before the devils were, you know, the the safe devil population were introduced to Mariah Island? Like, was there a lot of characteristics on, like, the number of turbo chooks and the number of wombats and, like, the distribution of devils and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: We don't have much information on the wombats, per se, except that we know there were not that many. (laughs) But, um, so... The researcher was working on the um, mating system of the native hen, which is another fascinating um, aspect of them because they are polygamous and monogamous at once, which is very, very rare in birds because most of them are just monogamous for life. And um, in the same population, the native hens can have a strong pair for yeah that would just stay together for life, and the neighbor could be a polygamous uh, group um and then the neighbor can be another one but between this week can be even different like some could be one female with many male whereas another one would be one male with many female and then another one could be many male with many female and they all stay for life together <laughs> that's very <laughs> yeah. interesting yeah. so it's quite very rare exactly um so she was working on that for five years so we have like that long-term data of like very high quality oh that's great yeah
1: so that was really, really helpful <laughs> that's amazing and so from comparing that data and doing the research you've been doing, what what have you found? Um, so we found that the quality
0: of the territories that they were living on incredibly reduced. And um, so Anne found that in the, in the 90s, she found that the native hens were really depending on having good quality territories for their reproduction. So that means having very tall grasses and water so they can have the nests and they can hide their chicks in that um, cover. So they would not get eaten from raptors or snakes and things like that. And because they're flightless, they really need to have that water on the territory because they can't go anywhere else. (laughs) And they're very strongly territorial, so that's why... Um, they're also so funny because they fight so hard, all the night events, and they're like they get all crazy and fluffed up and really very, very loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> huh. it's the best. <laughs> I did not know that?
2: That's cool. <laughs> yeah, you
0: can like hear them from like kilometers away. Sometimes it's just like you know
2: that they're gonna be fighting over there, and you just go straight there, and they're just fighting. <laughs> Oh my god! And and is it like giraffe fighting, where they're just like going nuts with their necks and like pecking at each other, or (laughs) is it like you know big flappy? (laughs) Gonna get you with my wing, bro!
0: Yeah, (laughs) which is funny because they're (laughs) flightless, but they're still like. That's the only way whether they flap their wings is when they fight, and they just like get on the floor and they kick and yeah. So, good territory quality would be tall grasses and water because their hands can't really go anywhere else, and they need that protection for the chicks. Mm -hmm. And we found that they all disappeared. So there was um, still some territory that had water so the hens could manage. Um, but there was, yeah, all the tall grasses had disappeared. And, um, the water also um, evaporated. It seems to just disappeared, And the creek dried up. And a lot of the territories that used to have water didn't have water anymore. Um, and the shock when I arrived for the first year is that the native hens just didn't reproduce at all. I would just, i kept keep going, and it was just like, well, the, they're not reproducing, there's no eggs, there's no chicks, like, it's just, nothing happens, it's just for, like, a joke, it's like, what well, you guys, are super, like, what's going on? <laughs> and the whole season, only one group had chicks, and over, like, 50 birds, the, they were the only family that had chicks in. Wow. Yeah, it felt just, pretty know, harrowing. Crazy, yeah. like a ghost town. And then, um, yeah, and the next year, they had a bit more, maybe, like, three groups had chicks, but still, like, it's, they're supposed you know, you would expect that they would all reproduce or try and then most generally like the chicks get eaten and then they they die that way, but at least they, they try reproducing, but they did not also that's um that's a bit hard to explain. But the fact that there is that the water disappeared and, and this territory changed might be why they just skip reproduction, and there has a so they had a lot of droughts on Ryan and before that in the year before, so maybe it was just that environmental change was just too much for them too.
2: So did that just coincide with the introduction of the Tasmanian devils? Then, so it kind of sounds like the droughts and stuff might have been linked to more like climatic change, and then the devils were also introduced. So it's kind of like exacerbating. Problem, yeah.
0: Well, actually, the devils seem to be just fine,
2: like they're not they're doing <coughs> anything.
0: <laughs> they were, um, oh they would try, but the native hen would just like run after them and like scare <laughs> them away. and, really? and yeah, yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't be really proud. They would have like a flock of native hen running after them, and they're like, not, not too <laughs> I'm not trying d- to I'm not doing that. I'll get an easier <laughs> dinner exactly. somewhere yeah. else. <laughs> so the devils
2: were fine, uh, I reckon. And could any of those changes in like habitat have contributed to how the wombats have increased? Like I know that that's not necessarily your research question. It's just interesting that this is all happening in quite a closed environment in a way.
0: Yeah. So, um, the idea, like, we need more data to be uh, more certain about what caused what. But because the wombat almost like more than double in just wow. a few years, and so on. Mariah, the the macropods, so the kangaroos, wombats. Um, sorry, the kangaroos, paddy minutes and why are cold. Um, but not the wombat, so they just like kind of took over, and so because the wombat have that privilege, um, they would just overgraze a lot. That's what has been found um, when they do survey, and and because they have that ability of grazing a lot of different things, Like they can chew on sticks and roots and um, all sorts of vegetable um, uh, vegetation. <laughs> yeah, vegetation. Then they're very more uh, resistant than the uh, macropods but they also have more impacted this more of them so they would easily chew down the big grass the tall
2: grasses and, and just like get everything short <coughs> wow i didn't know that that's mm. very interesting you're listening to that's what i call science stay with us um, as we talk more to lucille levec about her research on tasmanian native hens
1: You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we are talking about Lucille's research to understand the vulnerability of Tasmanians' native hens and other flightless birds in the family that they belong to, called rails. So, Lucille, you found that the territory quality for turbochooks on Murrior Island is decreasing due to less vegetation cover and um, fewer sources of water. So, what implications does this information have for not only native hens, but more broadly for predicting how similar species may be impacted in the future?
0: Yeah, it, it is um, not so surprising, unfortunately. And um, So, we found that drought was one of the big factors that caused the disappearance of, of water, most probably, and, and drought is a direct consequence of climate change, as we know, and um and it's likely to happen more often and more frequently. and, and in diverse regions of the world, as well as Tasmania. And um, so f- the net event is not threatened and it's still declining. So if you think about other species, that would he- heavily depend on water and there's a lot of wetland birds in that way that would highly depend on that. If the droughts continue and the extreme events continue, like heat waves and the temperature, then yeah, they would have
1: incredible detrimental effect on the birds. So even... Though this bird isn't, isn't threatened, it's kind of like a canary in the mine type situation. Like if a non-threatened bird is affected by these things, what about all the other species, yeah. especially the threatened ones? Yeah, yeah. Exactly.
0: And then um, other work on their distribution in Tasmania, where I looked at linking the environmental and climatic parameters with their presence. That's what we call a species distribution model. And then we found that even though they are quite present everywhere in Tasmania now, except the southwest, in the future of the climate change, because the environment would get hotter and drier, they would shift and almost disappear from the east coast. and some regions, they would just be a lot less present, which is surprising for such a common bird. So you're like, oh, wow, even them, they, they're going to change. Yeah, so the fact that they would change the distribution and get reduced, you would think, well, fishes that actually are already reduced and restricted, then they will actually really, really struggle especially when they're
2: bound to such a small island. Usually, like conservation work, if I'm not wrong, generally is like, okay, well, we can inform strategies by looking at the changes in patterns or like the amount of d- a specific species. But then it's like, well, what can we do about it? So if it's all climate related and you've observed that it's like not really much else other than the fact that their habitat is changing quite rapidly, like what does that mean for the what we can do about it? Type thing and how we can prevent it, or because I mean, it, unless we do something like the climate, we're gonna have to start manifesting habitats that are somehow ideal. that's very hard to replicate what nature does.
0: So, interestingly, I actually found that in some um, cities, the native hen would be a lot present, and that's because the humans have such a positive impact on the native hen, interestingly, because they are created uh, water sources right so they have farms and they have cities and they have golf courses and and this perfect habitat on any hand so um in some places they actually are more abundant thanks to the um, human settlements and so that's why it's also hard to predict the future in that way because even though they might disappear in the wild in some areas because of settlements and that increase of actually good parameters for the habitat then they can in some other areas Um, thrive more
1: yeah I guess they're such good colonizers that oh we create an environment and they're like great (laughs) yeah and it's also
0: very just surprising that they can tolerate tolerate us so much Mm -hmm. and they don't seem to care having
1: us around after your research Lucille after your PhD which you're wrapping up now what do you hope to do after do you hope to continue this sort of research in looking at the the vulnerability factors that lead to extinctions of animals
0: Yeah, oh, there is so many things to work on that I'm very excited (laughs) for. Um, So, yeah, for the um, um, the vulnerability, there is a lot of work to be done on, yeah, looking at the impact of extreme events, especially for island birds, because they are so limited that they can't change the distribution. If climate change starts to shift them, they can actually get stuck, and then, like, droughts and, yeah, heat waves can have a very major impact. And because island birds they have such a heritage value um, especially of the flightless ones which are my favorite they're so unique and incredible and such um, such a treasure of evolution of the evolution that we really want to have them sit around, and and they can be so much impact. So there'd be a lot of work to do on that. But also, I get really nerdy about flightlessness, and <laughs> <laughs> I just love to learn more about the origin of flightlessness. What created flightlessness, especially for the native hen? Um, it had this unique ability that it when it evolved flightless on the mainland, which is super rare, especially for a rail, because they generally evolve so on islands where they have no predators. Um, and like lots of food around but on the mainland they had multiple lions multiple tigers uh, multiple devils they have human hunters they have everything and and still they evolve flightless so that just blows my mind (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then yeah after that there's even understanding more flatlessness in rails and what are the conditions that create that and i would just love to see if we actually give enough space for rails to keep evolving that way if if that's what they need to. Like, I was still giving some space for nature to evolve the way it's more natural. And we can see rails... Still colonizing new islands. And it's kind of exciting. It's like, ooh, what's going to happen in a few thousand years? <laughs> Are they actually going to be flightless or not?
2: Thanks so much, Lucille. Uh, what a fascinating episode. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science content and hope you enjoyed the show. Do remember, you can get That's What I Call Science wherever you listen to your podcast and you can find all of our previous episodes. For now, thank you. And until next time, my name is Dr. Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank my co host, Kate Johnson, and our expert guest, Lucille. Levec from the University of Tasmania. Thanks and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at EDGE Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.